Our second scripture reading is from the book of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. It was uh, about a year and a half ago that um, we were here in this building for a church service, and we had a guest worship leader. Um, And it was at the time in the service, after we have taken up an offering, the offertory song is sung, and then I'm usually standing back here, and the next thing we do is I get you standing, and then we sing the doxology. Now normally what happens is the mic guys turn off my mic so you don't hear me singing, and normally the worship leader hits a particular chord and then gets us going. On that particular day, the worship leader hit a chord, but they hit the wrong chord. Knowing that they hit the wrong chord, they stopped singing. I didn't know they hit the wrong chord, so I kept singing, and my mic was not off. It started off like this. Praise God from whom all. We all laughed. It was funnier for you than for me. And I'm forever horrified at singing that song. I was out of key. We were in the wrong key. I don't know if it would have mattered if we were in the wrong key because my mic was on and my tune doesn't quite hit the right notes most of the time. You know, you can tune a guitar to a piano. 
hitting the notes on the piano keys and then tuning the guitar strings to that piano. But if the piano is out of key, out of tune, your guitar will be too. Now the two of them will be matched, but overall you'll be out of tune. If the instrument of your life was out of tune, would you even know it? The 18th century hymn writer put it this way in his prayerful song, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. His prayer is, God, set my heart aright so that my heart is tuned to you, to your gospel, to your ways, that it's tuned to the right key, the right note. In Samuel, the book of Samuel, we get that it is a story about God choosing a king. And it's God choosing a king because of his heart. Saul is rejected and David is chosen because of his heart. We see this in chapter 13, verse 14, which we didn't read, where God rejects Saul and he says instead, the Lord has chosen a man after his own heart, a man after God's own heart. In the story that was just read in chapter 16, Samuel thinks he sees the king, but the Lord says, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God looks at our hearts and wants to make us into people, men and women who are after his own heart. Let's see how it plays out in our story. So what happens, and this was just read, I know, but let me bring it before you. The, it, last week, we, we were doing Freedom Sunday, where we were highlighting slavery around the world and the need to work in justice and with our partners, IJM. And so we skipped over looking at the story of Saul. It, but if you've been reading along, if you take one of those bookmarks out there, you can read along and know where we'll be in the coming weeks. And so if you had read chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, here's what you would have found. Israel demanded a king. They wanted somebody to rule over them, so God gives them Saul. And for a while, King Saul uh, sort of operated in the ways of God, but eventually he didn't trust God. He wouldn't wait on the Lord, and he rejects God, so God rejects him. And that brings us to chapter 16, where we read in verse 1 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will provide you, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. So God tells Samuel, look, stop grieving that Saul's not the right king. I have provided for myself. I will choose. I am sovereign, and I will make the right choice this time. Not Israel choosing, but me choosing. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem and finds Jesse, who he's told to go find, and says, gather up, we're going to worship God, offer sacrifices, and I'm going to anoint one of your sons. And so they gather around, and as the sons come forward, Samuel, the prophet, is thinking, one of these sons is going to be the king. And so, in a good first century world, what you do is you present your firstborn son first. It was kind of obvious. And Samuel sees Eliab and says, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. He was the oldest, the firstborn, and based on the other verses, he had stature, meaning he physically was a strong, large man. 
this has got to be the king, right? I've seen the other brothers. This has got to be the king. But God says no. In verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so, he goes to the next son. Is this the one? And this time, Samuel's actually listening to God. Is, is the second son the one? Nope. The third? Nope. The fourth? No. All the way through seven sons. And at that point, Samuel's scratching his head thinking, God, you told me to come and find the sons of Jesse and anoint one of them as king. So he says, are, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest, and that word youngest can also mean smallest in Hebrew. He's keeping the sheep so that the rest of us can sacrifice and you can anoint one of these sons of mine. Bring him here. And the Lord said, yes, this youngest, smallest son is the one. And so we read in verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. In the midst of his brothers, who were at bare minimum surprised that their littlest brother, and probably are a bit angry and miffed, you don't pick the youngest brother, surely not the smallest. In every physical way, and in family order, David's not the right one, but the Holy Spirit falls upon him, empowering him for what he is called to do. And that's what the Spirit of God does. He empowers us for what he calls us to do. So throughout this whole story, there's a recurring motif of sight and seeing. And I think that we're meant to see what God wants us to see and what we fail to see most of the time. You can see it as you read throughout. At first, verse one says, I have provided myself a king among his sons. It's the same actual word that is, that is translated see elsewhere. In other words, God's saying, I've seen to it that there will be a king for me. I've provided for myself a king. Samuel looked on Eliab. The Lord said, do not look on his appearance. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Again and again in this chapter, we're getting seeing, looking, seeing, looking. How do you see and how does the Lord see? And of course, this is not just talking about our physical eyes. There's the spiritual realm to this. And what's behind this idea of seeing is how we perceive and interpret life. How do you see and interpret and perceive life. The writer is getting at how we understand what's true. And basically what's behind this is what is most important to us. What do we actually value? And God's declaration in verse seven is that we have bad eyesight, spiritually speaking. We look at externals. Our view of things is shaped by our culture's view. And my view of things is not by nature God's view. Even Samuel the prophet does this, right? He looks on Eliab, the firstborn son, who is large of stature. Now, for us, we might say, okay, we get it. You shouldn't just elect the firstborn son. You shouldn't just vote for the biggest guy, although historically presidents were elected on the largest one got elected and the shorter one didn't. 
But you shouldn't do that. That doesn't really matter to us. But in that day and age, these things did matter. You see, the first century world, or the ancient world, sorry, was a world of primogeniture. It basically meant the firstborn son got everything. If you're a second, third, or fourthborn son or a daughter, you get nothing. Well, relatively speaking. The firstborn son got a double portion of the inheritance. That meant your wealth. That determined your future. And the firstborn son got to carry on the family name in the community. He had the place of prominence in the clan. He got to carry the status. So your birth order, your family name and birth order were a currency. And Eliab had all of the currency. And on top of that, we can see it from the way that God corrects Samuel, that he also had physical stature. Now, Samuel is thinking what any ancient Near Eastern prophet who's going to anoint a king would think. It's the biggest guy should be king. Saul was anointed king, and Saul stood a head taller than everyone else. So he was probably 12 or 18 inches taller than everyone else. Let's make him king. And it makes sense in an ancient world when you did hand-to-hand combat. And if you were a king in the ancient world, in a tribal world, you were involved in hand-to-hand combat. It was more Braveheart than sitting in the White House. So if you wanted a king, he had to lead you in battle and literally get involved. So you don't want a guy that looks like this as your king. You want a guy who looks like he can wield a sword. The physical stature mattered. Firstborn sons mattered. Eliab, the firstborn son, looked like the perfect candidate to be the king in the ancient world. But God had something else in mind. And of course, we have to jump to today and think through, what do we look at? What do we value? What things are important for us? And we've talked about it in here, things like success, wealth, intelligence, academic degrees, your talent and giftings, your beauty and youth. We are a performance-based culture. And your value and worth is based on whether you are successful, intelligent, beautiful, gifted, or at least some combination of these. And of course, what if you're not? What if you have none of those things? What is your worth then? according to our culture. This passage asks us to ask ourselves, what do I look for? What do I see? What do I value? Because what I value is going to orient the direction of my life. The problem with all of us, even if you are a Christian, is that we don't naturally orient towards God. We don't see the world, others, or ourselves from God's perspective. We don't see as he does. And what does God look at? God looks at the heart. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what does that mean for us? What is your heart? Christians use your heart all the time. It's kind of a weird, strange thing because there is your physical heart, that thing that beats. It's really important to live. But when the Bible's talking about your heart, of course, it's talking about it in a different sort of way. Other ways of talking about your heart would be the core of your being, 
your inner life, your spiritual life. The heart is the sum of your thoughts, your feelings, and your desires. Okay, so I'm talking about our heart. God looks at our heart. He looks at our thoughts, feelings, and desires, all of which make me me. And Dallas Willard wrote, what is in our heart matters more than anything else for who we become. The sum of our heart, the fixation of our heart, what our heart is looking at matters more than anything for who we are going to become or who we already are. What this passage tells us is God is less interested, hear this, God is less interested in our behavior than our heart. God is less interested in our behavior than our heart. And it's not that God doesn't care about what we do or that what we do doesn't matter. It's that God knows that what we do is an overflow of what's in our heart. Nobody murders, commits adultery, gets wasted, yells hateful things, unless it's here first. You don't accidentally commit adultery. It starts here and flows out. David is not chosen because he is the firstborn or the most physically capable. David is not chosen because he's the most successful and capable. David is not chosen even because he's good. He's chosen because his heart is attuned to God. And that's what God wants to work with. The goal of the Christian life is actually heart transformation or heart reformation, retuning our heart and realigning it to God. So that I view, I see the world and others and myself, I interpret all of life from God's perspective. So that my heart is in relationship with God and I'm trying in my desires to follow God's purposes. In other words, it's a heart that looks like Christ who, while he was on earth, was attuned to the Father, fulfilling the Father's purposes, listening to the Father, shaped by the Father, and only doing what would please the Father. The goal of the Christian life is a heart like Christ. James K.A. Smith wrote, Christian formation is a matter of aiming our loves, orienting our desires to God and what God desires for his creation. And the way this works is the grace of God that we talk about all the time, faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Do you know where they operate? They operate in the realm of the heart. It's in our thoughts and feelings and desires the core center of who I am. And God is constantly desiring to shape them, to heal them, to reorient them towards him. And so in some ways, what we are called to do is to tune our hearts like you tune a piano. You go to each key and make sure it's in tune. And we need to do that work with our own hearts. Acknowledging that there are parts of our heart that might be in tune, but probably many parts that are not. 
And God is not interested in part of your life. Like, hey, God's got your Sunday mornings. Or God's got your kids, but not your work. And the hard work of retuning is taking our heart and laying it before God and saying, where am I off, God? Where am I playing the wrong note? In my marriage, with my friendships, and how I'm valuing my schoolwork, in my sexuality, in my free time, with my money, in my thought life. And we're constantly retuning it to the ways of God. And that's the purpose of reading scripture, so that my mind is filled with the ways of God. It's the purpose of prayer, so that I'm reoriented to desiring the things of God. It's the purpose of gathering in worship and praise, so that my loves are reoriented towards God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in me to enable me to love things I didn't love before. A constant retuning and reorienting towards the ways of God. David is called a man after God's own heart. And it was not that he was really good. Rather, a heart that is after God's own heart, if any of us want it, is marked first by dependence. It's marked by dependence. We're gonna see this next week when we look at the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is a giant. The Israelites do not want to fight him. David is a little boy still, teenager maybe, but he's got one of those like ninth grade bodies, not one of those 12th grade bodies. And he says, I will go fight Goliath. And all the army of Israel, including Saul the king, said, you can't beat him. And David says, maybe I can't. But he, he says, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. He is relying on, depending on God, not his own abilities. We live in a world where we try to emphasize our strengths and hide our weaknesses. Now, we are willing as Christians to rely on God in areas of weakness. So if you're afraid of public speaking and in your job you have to do a speech, you will pray a lot before that speech. If you finally hit the teenage years with kids and you don't know what you're doing, you will pray a lot. You start relying on God as soon as you start feeling weak. But in areas of strength, whether it's at work or at home or in your life or in your finances, if you're doing okay in those areas, you don't rely on God. Pretty much got it yourself, right? Like we have areas of our life where we're like, God, I need your help. And then we have whole other areas where we're like, I've got it. I'm good, God. I'll take care of this one, you take care of that other stuff. A dependent heart doesn't cordon off areas that we have control of and God doesn't. It's a recognition that we always continually need God's power and grace. You know, suffering is never a gift. Suffering is never a gift until it is. In success, when things are going well, we have a tendency to assume it's us. But when your teenage kid is struggling with addiction, or your marriage is breaking down, or you get the cancer diagnosis, all of a sudden we realize we can do nothing. We don't have the power or control we thought we have. 
And we have to turn to God. That's why Paul hears this affirmation of God in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's dealing with suffering. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Only when you recognize how weak you are will you understand how great I am. Then you will know my grace and my sufficiency. A dependent heart is one that is constantly praying and trusting in God and not in self with every aspect of life. It's a recognition and admission that I need God's grace and power more than I need a good and perfect life. If everything goes wrong in this life, but I have God, I have enough. First, a heart after God's heart is marked by dependence. Secondly, it's marked by repentance. If you know the story of David, you know that it also includes the story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, it includes several instances where David sins. David is not perfect. Being after God's own heart doesn't mean that his life is totally clean. Rather, it means that he acknowledges his sin when it becomes obvious to him. Hopefully, even before it becomes obvious. But in the case of David and Bathsheba, something happens. David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then has Bathsheba's husband killed. Now, in the first century, I mean, the ancient world, all these things were available to him. He's king. He can do whatever he wants. Any woman in the kingdom is his, and he can execute anybody he wants. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. But Nathan the prophet comes to him, says, David, what have you done? And while it was the king's right to even execute Nathan the prophet, thankfully, the Lord speaking through him spoke to David's heart, and David just falls down on himself and says, I have sinned against the Lord. He quickly admits, once he is confronted by the word and truth of God, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51 and the rest, the end of uh, 2 Samuel, is the story of David's repentant nature for the wrongs that he has done. David had a heart after God's because he was repentant, not because he was perfect. Now, this is hard for us because we live, as I mentioned earlier, in a performance-based culture. And that means we're constantly comparing ourselves to one another in whatever it is that we think is most important to us. And if we're constantly comparing, then we have to hide our weaknesses and our faults, which means you can't confess that you fall short. You can't confess that you're a sinner. Most of us go through life either hiding our sin or being defensive about it. Which is your favorite? I'm really good at being defensive because I can make good arguments. Usually it's one of my kids who confront me with my duplicity, hypocrisy, wrong nature, and then I will tell them why I'm right. It's usually not until a day or 10 later and then it's too late to tell them about it that I actually realize that they're probably right, convicted by the Holy Spirit, that I need to confess my sin. So what do you do, hide your sin or get defensive about it? You've got to cover over yourself. We are a performance-based culture. But it's not the gospel view. The gospel view is that we have nothing to hide because all of us are more sinful than we're willing to admit. Our basic Bending of our heart is away from God. 
To be a man or woman after God's own heart is to readily, willingly confess everything because it is by grace that we are saved. And in the process of confession, we find healing and forgiveness and the love and mercy of God who has died for our sin. Dependence, repentance, and the last one doesn't rhyme, humility. Really, we could have just stuck with humility. It's really what it's all about here. A heart after God's own heart is a humble heart. Go read through David's Psalms, which are dozens of Psalms in the book of Psalms, and what you will find is David is, has humility that is marked by gratitude and praise. It's an orienting towards God that recognizes that everything I have and everything I am, whether it's areas of success or areas of struggle, is a gift from God, and I am constantly dependent on him. If you have a heart after God's, you recognize there's no grounds for pride in life. It's easy in a comparison and performance-based culture to be self-righteous about your life or how great your kids are compared to them. But what's the reason that your career is going so well? Why is it that your kids aren't smoking pot and in trouble? It's probably you, right? Because you're a pretty great parent, pretty great worker. You got it all under control. Is it you or is it grace? Did you determine where you were born? America versus the Sudan? Did you determine your genetics? Can you change someone's heart? Your kids may have perfect behavior and a terrible heart. Your kids may screw up a lot, but have a heart after God's. What God cares about is the heart. We see the outside. God is continually choosing younger sons, barren women, prostitutes, stupid fishermen. If he has chosen you, it's not because you're good or pretty or talented or intelligent. It's not the capable, but the humble that God uses. You may be very disciplined, self-controlled, and for you, avoiding vice is really easy. But if you're not relying on God constantly, your heart is actually looking to save yourself. You might look good on the outside, but on the inside, yikes. On the other hand, you may be a wreck of a person, <laughs> struggling constantly with addictions, in and out of debt, but you might be closer to God if your heart is filled with humility and repentance and a constant recognition of your neediness and the grace of God. God is looking for a heart. God chooses David, who is the youngest and the smallest. It did not make sense in the ancient world. God looked at David's heart, not his appearance or his birth order, and God saw a man after his own heart. But of course, even David wasn't the perfect king. He couldn't fully save Israel. 
He was not fully attuned to the Father. But of course, there was one who was. You see, David in his life, as the man after God's own heart, the king who would come and save Israel, pointed to a great-grandson who definitely didn't look the part either. Isaiah 50, 53 written a couple hundred years after David, but 700 years before Jesus, prophesied that one day the true king, the true Messiah would come, and he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He would be despised and rejected by men, as one from whom men hide their faces. He would be somebody that no one would esteem. Jesus didn't look the part He didn't look like the kind of person to be king and Messiah and Savior, but he was. He was the true Savior and King, the one whom God would use to bring about his purposes. The whole story of the Old Testament and the one that we're looking at right now from Egypt and slavery into Exodus and freedom, from wandering in the wilderness to entering the promised land, from dealing with centuries of judges who misled Israel and people going after whatever they wanted to a king that was faulty like Saul to another king that was the true king, David, all of it was pointing to Jesus, to what God was intending through his son Jesus and for us. And it's all part of God's plan to restore all things in his eternal kingdom. You know, God had this plan to kind of cover the whole earth with his glory, to establish a kingdom and transform the world. And you know how God decided to do it? It wasn't wasn't through kings or presidents. It's not economic structures or political systems. It's not even through the church as we know it today. God's plan for transforming the world is hearts. One heart at a time. Turn to and attune to him. Let's pray. God, you are the fount of every blessing. We pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace. May your grace and goodness bind our wandering hearts to you. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. So take our heart, Lord, seal it, seal it for your courts above. Amen.